Coming up on Leading Edge. At IBM, we called them wild ducks. It was that idea that we didn't want people to fit so well. We wanted misfits to create innovation and entrepreneurial behavior. Many people end up going towards entrepreneurial roles if they don't like the constraints of the organizational environment. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome to Leading Edge, a new podcast from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason, and in this series, we'll be equipping you with the latest tools and management thinking to thrive in the workplace of 2030 and beyond. We'll be tackling topics as varied as gig leadership or taking turns at the tiller, how to improvise when there is no plan, what to do when you realise that you're working for a robot, why CEOs are still not listening properly to their boards, and why diversity's not only skin deep. Today's topic is the right fit, keeping staff engaged at the workplace. And I'm joined by Karen Jansen. She's a professor in leadership and change at Henley Business School. And prior to that, she spent a decade as a systems engineer at IBM. Karen, welcome to Leading Edge. Please can you tell me a little bit more then about this research that you've done into the four different fits in the workplace? Thank you, Thomas. Um, I'm really interested in how people fit at work. And... We probably best know what fit is when we're hired into an organization. People want to know if they fit with the core values of the firm. And so when you're being recruited or interviewed, people are often looking, are they a good fit? A fit is great for organizations because it, for employees, it reduces stress. And if you're a good fit, you're more likely to stay in the organization longer. So uh, we talk about fit a lot, but we think about fit as a very static thing. Like, I ask you your fit when you first join, and then I never think about it again. And so we were really interested in this study to find out um, how fit changes over time and how that affects um, people in terms of long-term tenure. Sure. And there are, I believe you think, four primary categories of fit in an organisation. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about how you came to those and what they are. So we were surprised to find that there's actually very stable patterns, four types actually, uh, about how people prefer to fit at work. Right. The first is uh, being a trader. And with a D, not with a T. Right. And <laughs> um, the trader is the kind of person who is very transactional in their association with the company. So they care about pay, advancement, and uh, status. They tend to uh, stay as long as they're getting those things. And when, as soon as they're not, they're gone. They, they will, they're the most likely to turn over in your organization. The second is strivers. And these people care a lot about growth and learning and challenge. And as long as they're being challenged and having opportunities to learn, they'll stay. And then the third kind is a team player. And the team players, really, it's more about the social side of things. They want to be there for their coworkers. They feel a sense of belonging. It feels like home to them. And so they want to come to work every day and hang with those people. The last group are the caretakers, and these people are the most selfless in your organization. They like to be behind the scenes. They don't like to um, get any credit, unlike the traders, and they really care about helping the organization overall, almost your traditional servant leader type. So if I'm a trader, you know, you say this is a lot about advancement and status. How can I be 
what should I look out for if someone tells me I'm a trader and how can I do it better? You probably already know you're a trader. Um, you know, these are people who tend to go into contract roles because they like the flexibility of being able to leave. We talked about Gen Z earlier. These are the, They might start as traders as well because they don't want to commit to any one organization. Although, and when we say that, I can think of many Gen Zs or who are at the other end of the continuum. But for for traders, I think... They'll probably look at the HR practices when they join an organization. Is there a traditional career ladder? Does, does that, do they get promoted quickly? These are the kinds of issues that they're going to care about. Um, the striver is, are they investing in my education? Do they have opportunities for me to, um, to learn more and ad- advance intellectually rather than up the ladder? Um, at IBM, we had a dual career ladder. So we had people right. who went up the technical ranks and we had people who went up the um, the marketing and, and sales ranks and, sure. and climbing the ladder. And so having that separate ladder for technical people was works perfectly for strivers because they're scientists. They want to stay that way and they want to, to continue to grow and learn. And if I'm a team player, what's going to convince me that this is the right place for me? It's always that feel when you go in on the to the job interview, isn't it? You know, so you walk in and if people smile at you and and they engage you in the elevator and they they seem to care about who you are as a person, you sort of get a feel right away of I fit here. It feels like home, and that's really the kind of things that they talk about is it feeling like home. Sure, and if I'm the caretaker, perhaps as you say, sometimes it's people nearing the end of their careers. They're thinking, what's my final act? How, how can I give back? How can I develop new staff? How can companies support those sorts of people? I think they caretakers get abused, frankly. Um, I think that they do such a service for the organization, the organization is not going to complain about that. But often they need extra coaching. They need um, time off, like they forced time off because they won't ever leave. They're so dedicated and so loyal that they don't take care of themselves enough. And so they need somebody above them who really is looking out for them. So great. We've got four types there. The trader who's quite quite selfish almost and yes. wants to get what they can out of the organization. The striver who's really planning to get on and they're very ambitious but it might benefit the organisation as well if they do well. Uh, the, the team player and and the caretaker, the person perhaps thinking what they can give back and thinking about leaving an organisation towards the end of their career. Um, when you looked at these four fits, Karen, did you find that it's a, a four-way split, that organisations have got equal numbers of all of them, or, or how, how do they coalesce? I think every organisation is different. And so some will have all four, some may have one, or two or three. So it depends on the kind of organization. The larger the organization, the more likely you're going to have multiple types. Uh, if you are, you know, a, a nursing profession, for example, you might have a lot of people who tend to be team players or caretakers at that end of the continuum because of the kind of profession that they're in. And do you think that there's an ideal type of employee if you had to choose who you wanted in your organization and you had to choose one type of people who who would you go for it's a great question thomas but i think the answer is really it depends on the situation on the setting so it the best answer is when it's a good fit with that culture and the values of the organization 
Bryant. So this is a, a, a really interesting framework. What implications do you think this has got for recruitment? If you know what kind of person you want, how do you assess your you, that person against a job spec and against an interview? Yeah, so it's really not just during recruitment. The real benefit here is for long-term tenure, is for actually keeping people in your company. And so... As you can imagine, if somebody's a striver who really likes to grow and learn and be challenged, then if your organization cuts the training and development budget, you're suddenly really creating a misfit in this situation. And so it's really that interaction between the employee's type and what the organization is providing. And you talk about a possible misfit. How do people identify we think with with these with these classifications do you tell them that they're a striver or a team player or do they are they do they own it themselves are they aware of how they fall into this classification well what was interesting is we did a we did qualitative interviews with 50 people and asked them about their overall experience with fit over time and what we found was that they didn't know what type they were but there was a pattern across multiple work experiences that they shared where they always seem to go for the same kind of job and the same kind of opportunity. And at the end of the interviews, many of them said, I've never looked at my career this way. And so they gained a lot of insight. So part of what we're trying to do is help employees gain their own insight about what they really value about their work, not just the job, but the environment that they're in but also to give the organizations the opportunity to adjust how they're, what they're providing for those people, treat them differently. If, if your idea is, I'm going to give raises to everybody to keep them, that will only work for the traders. Sure. And indeed, is there anything for employers to be worried about? Because if they've got a lot of strivers, they're dishing out a load of tra- training and development to a certain extent, that might benefit the organisation. To a certain extent, it might equip those people to go and work somewhere else. So uh, what's the best uh, way for employers to view these insights? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think that we've always had that issue with training, right? Where if if I train people, are they just using me for the training and then they're going to go elsewhere? Um, one of the things we've noticed is that as people have gained years of experience in a company, they tend to push more to the right meaning the right-hand side of this continuum from selfish to selfless. Right. So a striver might still always be a striver, but they'll start to care more about the team members and the overall organization. So you can be more than one, effectively. You can, um, it, but you can't be at the two ends. Right. I haven't found that one yet in all of my research. It's, it's basically you're, you're one next to it or, or you're on your way to the next one. I can certainly see how this model would fit well into the traditional idea that you maybe work for one or two employers in a lifetime. So you start off quite selfish, as you put it, self-focused, and you become more of a team player. You get to the caretaker stage. You're looking to bring on new staff. You're thinking about your legacy. You're trying to give something back. Um, How does this work in the the new world of work, if you like? Uh, Millennials who perhaps never stick around long enough to become team players or caretakers? It's a very good point. I think what I really want to emphasize here is that it's not necessarily just about retention. It's about making sure that when you're employing somebody, you're getting the most out of them. 
And so if I only have a millennial for two years, then I want to get as much as I can out of that millennial before they, they move on. So it's really about understanding what matters to them in terms of these four types and then making sure that you're doing what you can to make them feel a good sense of fit. Because once you stop fitting, your stress goes up, your satisfaction goes down, and you're, you're, you're not as productive as you have been. And so this isn't just about retention. It's about a lot of other things. And you say that the longer person, the longer someone spends in a, an organization, the further to the right, as you put it, the, from more from self-focus to, to other focused. Do you think there's something in the other direction that a, a millennial or a Gen Z person can teach the top management, the people who've been there, can, can, get, can embed some of the values in for them? So we're kind of early signs of caretaking rather than just giving something back at the end of your career to bring staff on. Yeah, so I again, I think there is a bit of a, a personal value system. I I interviewed one of the caretakers who said, "Look, my my father had one job, and he was a, a Teamster Union truck driver, and my mother had one job, and she was a nurse. And to him, that's all he was about. Like his values had been instilled. You work for one company, and it doesn't matter your age if you grew up with that kind of value." And so it's really about values in the end. And, and in fact, the number one reason people leave organizations is because of values incongruence, the misfit. Right, absolutely. And, and then just taking us back to the process where you came up with these classifications, can you just tell us about some of the organizations you worked with, some of them who really seemed to get this model uh, and some of them who were learning about the challenges it represented? So... Most of the research we've collected has been at the individual level thus far, and I've worked with a couple of small organizations uh, that really are trying to focus on how to identify leaders and how to, de um, to develop those leaders. And so they were very keen to find out more about how these types predict performance and advancement and development. And, and there's a link here perhaps with personality of a person. Uh, how, how would you describe that? Yeah, so there's a couple correlations be with personality, I would say. Um, the traders are the least agreeable of the four types. Right. Uh, the caretakers, not surprisingly, are the most agreeable of the four types. And the strivers are the most adaptable, open to experience, which makes total sense. And, but the team players are also high on that category, just not as high as the strivers. So, so you were telling us a little bit about the implications for staff retention. So it, very interesting what you said about people not always understanding their own type, not having that self-awareness. But what implications do you believe this model has for helping keep staff motivated to work and keeping them in the company and thriving? There's an old saying that says, don't treat your employees like um, checkers, using an American phrase, right? Um, what are they called? Drafts? <laughs> treat them like chess pieces so it's really about trying to adjust for the type of person and if we again that to that example of if i give a particular opportunity to everybody equally it's not really leveraging the diversity that i have in my organization and so i don't have to give a raise to everybody i can give a raise to the few traders i can g generate more team feel-good experiences for the team players. I can 
try to take care of the caretaker because they tend to get burned out, actually. They, they're the group that they're so, so selfless, almost to their detriment. They've hurt their own career. And to extend your metaphor a bit there, Karen, so what happens if you're a pawn in one of these organisations, like in chess? Uh, you know, what if somebody becomes disillusioned in the workplace? Do they fall back from being a team player or a striver back down to a trader or do they maybe fall off your grid entirely? No, I, I guess this is where they become a misfit. Right. Right. So they know they're, who they are and the type of person they are and the kind of environment they want. And when that changes, they're not happy anymore. And so that creates stress, decreases productivity, all those things we've mentioned before. And again, good classifications for employees. But what if you are a, a bit of the, a misfit? And some of the people who are misfits, they, they're the entrepreneurs, aren't they? They're the self-employed people. They're the sort of Steve Jobs of the world who like to think of themselves as professional rebels. What, what, what about them? At IBM, we called them wild ducks. Wow. Tell, tell us more about that. <laughs> so it was that idea that we didn't want people to fit so well. We wanted misfits to create innovation and entrepreneurial behavior and, and all those things. So yes, many, many people end up going towards entrepreneurial roles if they don't like the constraints of the organizational environment for those reasons, because they'd like to be a misfit. Uh, the other thing I think that's really interesting about misfit here is we were really surprised to find that people don't think about their fit when they fit. They only think about it when they don't fit. Right. So, and one of our, our participants said, it's kind of like when your shoes are too tight. You don't think about your shoes if they fit, but when you're, they're pinching you, you think about your feet and your shoes a lot. And that's exactly what happens. As soon as Misfit's introduced, it activates a whole series of coping and, and adjusting to mm. it. And, and then you think about it more and more and more, and it becomes kind of consuming. So it's not a good path to be on. It's, it's better if the leadership can identify that this person is, is feeling this misfit in that moment and see what they can do to adjust that environment, to change the role, to expand the role, to give that opportunity for them to not spiral down. So, so I suppose you know it, it's also about, isn't it, about the about the organisation fitting in with the person. So I, I might be a team player and a striver in one organisation, really happy, really productive, and get on well with my colleagues. I move to a new organisation. I'm a fish out of water. Maybe back down to being a trader, if even that. How, how can I how can I cope as somebody moving from one organisation to the other? I think it's less likely that that's going to happen because what we call these four types are fit identities. It's really imbued in the person. So if if they've been a, a striver and they go, go find a new opportunity, they're most likely going to be a striver. That's what our, our um, data show. So they continue to always be a striver. All they can do is change the environment. So if I don't fit in this one place or they start to decrease training and development opportunities, that's when people will leave to go seek out that exact same kind of environment. So for organisations, there's not much benefit to trying really hard to change someone. People are quite constant and they don't really change. Well, the real question is if you can sort of tweak their how they think about their fit, you know, so you can have more dialogues and, and, and start to... to find out what their type is, what really would help them. It's, it's, 
it's a lot about development, really. And, and so what can I do as a manager to help you, you know, experience fit here? And is there any example where somebody might be motivated to game the system, but they realize, like with other psychometric tests, what they need to say to, to get a job and to get a role? You know, if I want to make myself sound like a striver or a team player, you know, I might, I might talk about growth or learning or contribution. Um, how how can we tell the genuine strivers from the fake ones? Well, the easy answer is because you see a pattern of behavior over time, right? So after a year or two, you've pretty much sorted it. And what's really interesting is when people hear just the titles, they, they automatically know kind of which one they are. And they also know their coworkers. They go, oh, right. okay, I have insights and I know that that's what's really driving them here. And that's useful, just like, you know, personality tests or anything else. And what type are you, would you say, Karen? Oh, I'm an absolute striver, which is probably not surprising given I'm in academia. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so what implications has that had on your career then, being a striver? I, I stay somewhere as long as I'm learning and growing. And when I'm not, when I feel like I'm stagnating, I move on. So back to your time at IBM then, mm. it sounds like you learned an awful lot. But at what point did you decide, right, well, I've kind of got what I'm going to get from that experience now and it's time to move on. What was your thinking? It, it was that exact same feeling where I was doing the same old thing over and over and um, I wasn't learning, I wasn't growing. You know, one new system every year. IBM was in a world of hurt at that time and they were missing the PC market and they were, you know, having all kinds of issues with adapting. So I got really interested in how do we adapt and how do we change? And so that's sort of why I started to go for the PhD. Great. So if we look at the corporate world then, Karen, and apply your four fits model to it, which companies do you think get this model uh, and which are perhaps doing it badly and need to improve? Sure. I think that individuals choose organizations based on their values and their culture. And so if it's an Apple or a Google, they have this, you know, take care of the staff, they work hard, they're premier at what they do. So those strivers and the traders are probably really interested in going there, right? Um, SaaS uh, is a great example of somebody who's much more on the team player side of things, because they really value long-term employment. They have all these uh, services for child care and medical care and pools and tennis and all that sort of things. And it's really about work-life balance for them. So they, they would probably appeal to a team player. So there's a bit of a selection bias that happens, right? So I choose an organization because of what they offer. And looking into the future, do you think some of these types will become more dominant as time goes on? Do you think organizations are evolving? It's a great question. I think that um, these are the four that we've found so far. There might be new ones. There might be others that emerge over time as the, the way we work and the way we organize uh, evolves. Absolutely. Great. So those are the four fit identities in the workplace. Lots to think about there. Um, I'd like to say I hopefully I'm a, a striver as well. But uh, don't, don't quote me on, on that. Well, and now thinking about the workplace of the future, Karen, you've got also some bold predictions in that area. So it's looking ahead to 2030. What do you think will be the biggest change to the way we do business? 
I'd like to think that by the time we get to 2030, we will be working fewer hours or fewer days and having much better work-life balance. So what is this the, the, the fabled four-day work week that you're talking about? Yeah, so I think that the idea that we all work nine to five, Monday to Friday, is just, it's a construction. It's, it's, it's not a real thing. We've just created that many years ago. And the question is, we're, we're, we're introducing artificial intelligence. We're transforming with technology. And we keep saying that's going to have a knock-on effect on, on um, people having more free time to do other things, but we're just not seeing it being implemented. So at some point, we've got to rethink the work week. Do you think there's an, an, an optimum number of hours? I mean, they've tried this in France, haven't they? They've, they've legislated for a 35-hour work week. I am not a big fan of legislating a, a decision, a solution here. I think that um, I would like it to be a choice. I think there are some people who want to work 80 hours a week and let's let them. Do you know if that's what they want to do, that's their choice. I think that it's more about trying to find the right balance for you as a person. In the end, we are going to have so much technology that's going to save our jobs that we have to find new ways of spending that time. I think so, so this is the idea that technology will save us and it's going to free us up. Some of the work that we did at Henley last year and that is being done around the world is finding that we're more productive in a four-day work week, in a four-day week, than we are in a five-day week. So if we can get all of our work done in shorter hours, why aren't we doing that? And some organizations are, go are, are beginning to do that and finding those exact results. We see it in study after study that these things are, are actually improving productivity. So it's improving productivity per hour. And if you look at the overall output of an organization, the turnover, perhaps, do you see that there's perhaps a, a knock-on effect there, a downturn in overall turnover? Or can these really productive people lift it up even in less time? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the biggest financial benefit here is that they are uh, they're keeping people because they're more ha satisfied, happy, they're thrilled to be in a place where they can work fewer hours at the same pay. Can the company make as much money if it, if people work work less overall? The mini, they're more productive? the the experiments that have been done and the research that has been done says yes, absolutely. And can you give me any examples that you think of of companies that have implemented successfully this four-day work week and have kept, kept staff on board? I had just spoken with um, somebody who has a professional recruiting firm and went to a four-day week about nine months ago and is doing fabulous. Full retention, everybody's happy, it's going very well for the first year. It's just this idea that perhaps Friday is a bit of a party day at the office anyway. People are winding down. But ironically, this is the reason we should be even thinking about this is because we used to work Saturdays. Yes. And what happened was because they had only one day off, they tended to party a little bit too hard and then miss work mm. on Monday. And so to fix that, they started to give them a half a day off on Saturday so they could have their bender on a Saturday night and have their day off on Sunday and then they were back at work. So it's a very interesting problem that We've adjusted the work week 
for behavior and for how people are. So if already people are starting to check out Friday afternoons, yeah. I, you know, you notice that the crowds aren't as, as heavy on a Friday. Um, why aren't we just saying, okay, let's get rid of that? It's it's l- low productivity anyway. So, right. well, It sounds nice, doesn't it? But then does, does Thursday become the new Friday? If you just move the cliff edge? That's the question, right? Is it, you know, at some point you've got to have some kind of deal about what needs to happen, and of course, this only works in some kinds of organizations mm. as well, right? So, if if you are a hairdresser, you sure. know, you have to cut hair, and you need your clients there, and so it, you have to fit it in wherever you get it done. So, there are going to be some professions, nursing and police and things like that, where this is a little bit harder to implement. Yeah, somebody's got to look after us in our leisure time until technology can do it all for us. Yes. So, so big changes. And, and and by 2030, then, how far do you think we'll have gone along this road of, of having more flexible working weeks? I feel like we're at the tipping point right now. I think there's been enough experiments that I think that um, we'll see it in particular industries first, professional services, areas, things like that, where they'll, they'll, they'll be there 100%, I think. And then maybe some others will start to follow. Okay. Mm. Um, all right. So we, we've got a four-day work week now. One of the benefits of this, I, I confidently predict, is that you've got longer fit to cook this extravaganza in the kitchen for what, what we're calling the dream dinner party. So there's three people that you get to invite to this dinner party, Karen. Uh, and the question is, alive or dead, uh, which, th- which three business people would they be? And you've had Friday off to cook, so I'm, I'm hoping for a spectacular menu as well. So <laughs> tell me more. I hate this question. I just have to be honest, Thomas, because to me it emphasizes that there is this charismatic, great man view of leaders that you know. I didn't I, mention man. I said business people. But do you know? It, you know, I just find that when you ask that question, you want to say a name, right? Which is what you want me to say, but I don't want to say a name. Right. Well, I want to talk about a type of a leader that I would like to have a dinner with. Okay. I'm, I'm all ears. So yeah. Who's it going to be? The first person is Al Truistic. Oh, yes. Okay. See what you did there. <laughs> and Al listens more than he talks. He's selfless. He enjoys serving others and, and the greater good. So, you know, here we might talk about inviting somebody like Eleanor Roosevelt or the Dalai Lama. The second type, Unassuming. <laughs> <laughs> unassuming. Okay. So she is unassuming, right? Uh, Una is quiet, humble, very well trusted, and very well respected. Yep. And often, might I add, found at the lower levels of the organization. Okay. Uh, I want to talk to Una because. They come from humble roots, or they have humble views of the world, and they really care about people. Um, Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, the founder of Starbucks, he came from the projects. And he watched his father slip on ice, and there was no workman's compensation, and, and he was out of a job. It was the end of their family, and as he says. And... It was a crucible moment for him, a defining moment where he said, I, when I have my own company, I will have, full empl- I will have full HR coverage for even part-time workers. And so he b- 
built his whole company on on those values. So we've got we've got two quite quiet people there. So the, so, so the conversation could, could take a while to get flowing. <laughs> Being quiet doesn't mean that you don't talk. So right. um, you listen more than you talk, but you still talk. But here's the third person. Momentary. And Mo happens to be in the right place at the right time. Okay. He or she is a leader who shows values, principles, um, and rallies people together. I think of a lot of situations, but probably some of the most famous ones are um, Tank Man during the Tiananmen Square incident where this one man holding his bags of groceries stands in front of the yeah. tanks to keep them from rolling in. An iconic photo. No one knows who he is. He was a 19-year-old boy, really. Yeah. And nobody knows who he is. He didn't do it for fame. He didn't do it to become one of the top 10 leaders in the world. You know, he's famous, but he, he's, he was all about that situation created the leader. Uh, another very recent example would be Dr. Lee, the ophthalmologist who first noted the coronavirus issue and tried right. to raise the, the, the flag and was basically beaten down and, and made to sign a form to say, I, I won't be a rabble rouser. And he rallied, and his death rallied a nation to say, this is not acceptable. And so it's those moments. That's the kind of leadership. I want to see it all through the, org- through the organization at all levels. I don't want us to be focusing on CEOs only because leaders are everywhere. I I guess why I like these three is I won't have any trouble finding and filling my 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 table in the end of the evening because I have a lot of choices versus I need to find these three CEOs or these three top executives who have made millions and and are, you know, narcissistic and Mm. and focused on themselves. I, I can find anybody who's a leader. So we've got just to conclude, then we've got altruistic, unassuming and mo. Mentory, three famous <laughs> business leaders. What, and how do you think they'd interact with each other? I think it would be a great dialogue because I don't think any of these people are out there seeking to be a leader. I think they really, it, it just happens being themselves. So I think it would be a lot of fun. Well, fantastic. I'd like to be a fly on the wall at that dinner party in the moment with unassuming and altruistic. But for now, Karen Jansen, it's been a fantastic conversation about FIT, about the four-day work week, lots to chew on there for the future. Thank you ever so much for joining us here on Leading Edge. Thank you, Thomas. Next time on Leading Edge. How can you not trust one of the key people in your business? Why is that person there if you wouldn't hand over to your business? So this is not about being cozy and nice. It's about challenge. It's about being open. Where do we take our business? Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leading edge for more.